Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Finding a way to do something that allows you to get through the situation in a way that is connected to what you care about. And so just trying something you've never tried before and doing something different that is meaningful to you. And young people have found all sorts of different solutions and ways to cope with this. And I think there's, there's something really important about knowing that we can do that. That was Dr. Louise Hayes on Psychologist Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone. This is Debbie. I have an interview today with Dr. Louise Hayes, who is an expert on adolescence. And in the episode, we talk a lot about some of the different stressors that adolescents face as they go through life. And right now, as you know, there are a lot of them. So in the episode, we talk about some issues related to the the pandemic and, and how that impacts adolescents specifically. And we also talk about some other just more general issues like bullying and that type of thing. Diana, what are your thoughts about the episode? Well, what a treat, first of all, to have Louise Hayes on. She's uh, just such a passionate uh, player in the field of adolescence and has brought so much um, sort of beautiful work of ACT to adolescence. And I love her DNA V model. And, you know, I have a sort of soft spot in my heart for adolescence, I think in part because I had such a struggle with it myself. It was a really painful time. And I see in my current life now how developed milestones that weren't met for me as an adolescent show up in my relationships. I know, Debbie, you've experienced that. Maybe a few. Maybe a few. <laughs> a few of my communication difficulties. And, and so I actually have dedicated a lot of my career to adolescence. And we're talking about adolescence. We're talking about this span from 12 to 24. So it's a huge developmental span. It's the time of our life when we have the highest risk of death by accident. So no wonder our parents are freaked out because yeah, there's accidents from drug use, from risk-taking behavior, um, from uh, suicide. It's an incredibly difficult time. And it's also a time that I think what gets left out is it's a time of growth 
an opportunity to prepare you for adulthood and creativity and courage. And I think it's important as we set the stage for adolescents to look at what are the developmental tasks of adolescents and what is the interpersonal neurobiology that's happening during this time so that we can really harness the strengths as, as Louise Hayes talks about so beautifully in this episode and, and also learn from them while keeping them safe. She talks a lot about that. So some of the changes that are happening in the brain, I love the work by uh, Dan Siegel, who was on our show a number of episodes back and his work called Brainstorm. If you're a parent of an adolescent, buy that book now, like go get it because it'll save you. It saved me as a therapist to adolescents. He talks about these four tasks of adolescent development, novelty seeking, social engagement, high emotional intensity, and creative exploration. And when we think about the pandemic right now and how it's impacting all of those things and also how all the radical changes that are happening in race and um, oppression and how the adolescents are really, those 20-year-olds are taking the lead in big, powerful, wonderful ways and making change in our country. So there's upsides and downsides to all of these tasks. And how do we as parents step out of and, and, and support, support or therapists step out of the myths that adolescents are lazy or out of control and that we need to control them and step into really practicing perspective taping, taking, understanding their developmental tasks, uh, seeing the strengths and the creativity and courage, and creating a path where they can be, have enough room to grow. We have a lot to learn from them. And the, the best way to do that is for us to model some of that perspective taking and empathy with them, which I think Dr. Hayes talks a lot about. Yeah, that's great. That's a really helpful model, Diana. Thanks for sharing that. I'd also just like to let our listeners know she talks about the DNA V model in the episode. And if you want to learn more about that model, which would actually be a great place to start, check out episode 79, which we did a while back with Louise, because she kind of walks us through the model a bit more. And you'll hear some of the terms in the episode today. Also, you really need to check out her book for adolescents that's just coming out. It's fantastic. It's really good for, for adolescents themselves. And also, if you're a clinician, you should check out her offering on Praxis. Praxis Continuing Education is one of our sponsors. And Louise has a training on the DNA V model. It's an in-depth one. It's on demand, so you can do it at your own pace from the comfort of your own computer. Uh, so check that out at praxisset.com and you can go to our webpage to link to them. Yes. You know, we also are affiliates of the NeuroDharma program with Rick Hansen, which is a great resource as well uh, as we're le learning about um, our own resilience and how to have some more mindfulness and empathy and perspective taking skills. And then I also want to say just a little plug for our podcast, help us out by making a donation on Patreon. It's a values-based donation. We put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears and <laughs> into, this ep into these episodes. And we um, need some support to keep the podcast going because uh, for it to be financially sustainable as we grow, um, we need a little bit more support to do all of the behind the scenes stuff. So check, it out, check out Patreon and please make a values-based donation. I'm here with Dr. Louise Hayes. Louise is a clinical psychologist, author, and international speaker and trainer. She's known for her work using acceptance and commitment therapy for young people in school and clinical settings. She's the former president of the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science. Dr. Hayes is also the author of the books, Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life for Teenagers and the thriving adolescent using acceptance and commitment therapy and positive psychology to help teens manage emotions, achieve goals, and build connection. And she has a brand new book just coming out, which is a fantastic book for young people called Your Life, Your Way, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy Skills to Help Teens Manage Emotions and Build Resilience, co-authored with Joseph Cherokee. You said it right, Joseph Cherokee. <laughs> <laughs> I had to check. <laughs> and this book, I'm going to get copies for my niece and nephew and for my own kids when they're older. If you're an adolescent or no one, you've got to check it out. It's a really good self-help book. Um, she's also been on the podcast before, episode 79 on helping adolescents thrive. If you want to learn more about her model for working with adolescents, DNAV, go back and take a listen. It's a great episode. Um, welcome back to the podcast, Louise. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Debbie. It's really nice to be here. I really enjoyed the last one, so I'm happy to come back. Well, thank you. We're glad you're here and also glad that you've written this book and that, that you're here to talk about it. And today we'll be 
talking about the book, and we're also really going to focus on how adolescents are coping with the big issues going on in the world today. I think that's that's a really important topic because adolescents right now are facing some pretty serious global problems. Some of these didn't even exist way back when I was a teenager. Some did, but some are really on the forefront right now, and there's some brand new, to name a few issues. You know, we have the pandemic, economic downturn and stress, racial trauma and injustice, political turmoil, climate crises, fires. You guys had the big fire in Australia fires in Australia earlier this year, school shootings, just so much happening in the world. Louise, we talked originally about doing this episode about a couple months back about the climate crisis specifically. And even since we had those first conversations about doing this, the world has changed so much. It's incredible, Debbie, just uh, how much it's changed in a few months. And as you read that list, I felt myself sinking, thinking, oh my goodness. It's a long list. It's a long list. It's a long list. And I feel that too. It just makes my heart heavy. And really, these issues are impacting all of us. They're experienced on this global level. But I think in some ways, young people, because of their age and their situation, they're uniquely impacted. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. We'll, We'll start broad here and then get into some specific questions. But what are you noticing in your work with adolescents in terms of how in terms of the emotional impact of this? Well, we're dealing with, firstly, we're dealing with times of change. Um, And when you read the list, it sounds horrific, to be honest, the the changes that we face right now. Um, And we have always had to deal with change. Um, And humans are actually pretty good at dealing with change. And so um, adolescents, set up to look at the world. Like the, if you think about the adolescent developmental period, it's a wonderful period where their ability to look at things in a different way and create new ways of doing things is really primed, primed by evolution, in fact. Um, and so I am hopeful even in the context of that big list. And I think um, there is a place for seeing where we're at and also being hopeful. And I I'm a firm believer that young people are the ones who are going to help us drive this change. I think um, um, older people, (laughs) I was going to say old people, but older people. (laughs) Older, uh, older people. (laughs) Middle age and up really need to be taking a look at some of the things that the teenagers and young adults have to say because I think they're our hope. I might add, like, I don't want them to be responsible. We're responsible too, but they have new eyes. Um, and I might just give you one little example. Um, yes, please. There's a, a researcher in the US called Alison Gopnik who looks at our cognitive styles and the way um, development influences that. And she has some really cool research showing that as you get older, you're, more, you're less likely to accept a new hypothesis, a new idea, even if the evidence supports that new idea. So the older you are, the less likely you to accept new ideas, even if there's tons of evidence around to say that there's a new idea. And adolescence is this unique window where new ideas are accepted and looked at. And I think that's something that I hold hope for. That's good to hear. I think that's that does give a hopeful point of view. And also, there is a certain level of flexibility when people aren't just set in their ways and I don't know, dare I say jaded about That's things. That's what you need I think, to say. <laughs> yeah, like I think that when I think about my own kids, I spend all this time worrying about, oh, this is so hard for them. You know, they're not with their friends. They're not at school, all these things because of the pandemic. And then I'm with them and they're they're adapting. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're adapting. And our, our ability to adapt is remarkable. We just have to make sure we're adapting to the thing we want. Yeah, so... Yeah. So that's hopeful. And we'll talk today about how adolescents can use that, that flexibility toward, you know, their values and, and creating change in the world to the degree that they can. I wonder, are you seeing that this is impacting them as individuals? Um, there must be a lot of variation in terms of how this is impacting adolescents. There is a lot of variation. 
Yeah, there is a lot of variation. Um, when you say this, uh, we're just talking about change, I guess. So we'll, yeah. because this might be the pandemic, but this might also be um, changes in social structure or political change or climate. So we'll just say this as change. And um, how they're coping depends on many individual factors. And some are really coping very well and some are struggling. And so I, it's kind of hard to answer that question. Um, I guess meet your adolescent where they're at. Or if you're a young person listening to this, wherever you are is, is okay. You know, you're not worse than anyone else in terms of how you cope. So the first thing we want to do is validate um, and, and let people know it's okay to be where you are. If you're sad about where you're at right now um, and finding it difficult to cope, that's okay and you can get help. And if you're okay with it and you like the lockdown, that's okay too. Um, and meeting yourself where you're at and finding support in that place is a good thing. I think the other thing is where you're at changes from one day to the next. I'm sure you know this, Debbie. Sometimes you go, oh, I can do this. This is okay. I can manage these changes that are happening right now. And then the next day you want to hide under the blanket. Oh, yeah. That's exactly how it is. It's so up and down. And I think that's been true with all the adults that I've talked to, older people I've talked to as well, is that it's it varies a lot. Um, some people are having a tough time some days, some aren't. Yeah. So no different for regardless of your age group. Yeah. What is probably quite interesting, I think, is that um, I know when, so if we just talk about in the context of the pandemic, when it first happened and we had to go into lockdown, there were lots of people who, including all the psychologists that I work with in the clinic I work with, who were stressed and overwhelmed and how are we going to cope with this and how can we do this? And clients too and young people. And then within a couple of weeks, we kind of settled into the pattern of whatever we had to do to manage the isolation. Um, and then here in Australia, we started to open up again. And I was really stressed and overwhelmed about the prospect of opening up again. And I spoke to a few clients and psychologists and we're all the same. We're all like, oh, I'm not sure I want to go back. I don't know how to go back. This is all stressful. And then we go, we start going back and it's like, oh, okay, I can do this. Yeah. So what you see is this kind of wave that happens the stress brings a, I can't cope with this. And then within a little space of time with the right supports, we kind of get, okay, we can do this. And then going back to what we used to do before brings the same amount of stress. And then Isn't that interesting? To, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it fluctuates and it, you know, it does that, the new normal, it feels like as things change, it's like a new normal every single day over time. And, and we do have this ability to, to ride these waves. Um, I think young people are finding that too. Um, and there is, it gives us hope to know that we will adapt pretty well. Yeah. Well, let's talk about um, the the social aspect of the quarantine and social distancing on young people, because I think adolescence does tend to be a, such a social time. What are your thoughts on that, On especially during periods when things are shut down in terms of the adolescent period? Yeah, I think that's a biggie um, because one of the key developmental tasks in the um, adolescent period is the social aspect. You know, their life is all about socialising and they need to socialise. Um, and we wrote about this in the book. We, and As we looked across the generations, we talked about, you know, maybe in the 1950s, people um, congregate, young people congregated in cafes or, you know, um, coffee shops or whatever. Um, and then in the 1960s they went somewhere else and in the 1970s they went to music festivals and or um, the local uh, club um, and, and now people socialize in different ways and young people still need that it's essential and one of the ways they socialize is online um, and so um, they have online and they have also school and they're after school activities um, and that's all gone so they just have online left what we know is developmentally they have a need to socialise and to broaden their social world and it's a really powerful need. They need to do it every day. Not every teenager but a lot. And so that has kind of been stripped away from them till what they have left is online. Yeah, so and the online, a lot of the online 
things that are still happening. It's an interesting shift because I think for a long time it was a battle between parents and kids to spend less time on screens and social media. And now that's all they've got. And it's, it's a blessing to have it because otherwise there would be nothing. Yeah. Yes. Um, Yes. It is a blessing to have it. And yet it's also really difficult. If you think about the way that you communicate with people online, um, if you're a young person and you're using um, a video conferencing platform, which many are for lessons, you can see yourself all of the time, unless you turn it off, of course, but we don't always do that. And so if you think about what's happening, firstly, you can see yourself all the time, which is way too much for most of us. And if you're a teenager, you're looking at yourself all the time. I've been doing telehealth with people and I say to young people straight away, turn that camera off so you can't see yourself. Um, and so that's different. And then the other thing is people don't respond to a an, an, uh, digital person in the same way that you respond to a physical person. You know, it's very easy to rapid fire off a text message sounding a bit cross or um, asking or saying something that may seem a bit harsh. But face to face, it's really difficult to do that. It's much more difficult to do that. So we have these different ways of interacting that alter how young people are able to socialise. Yeah. Yeah, those those face-to-face interactions are so important that uh, – yeah, there's a book about this, about it's called Reclaiming Conversation. And I don't know if you've seen it, Louise, but it's about, it's by a, a Sherry Turkle, I think is her name at MIT. And she writes about how something is lost when we don't have those face-to-face interactions. And that's a really hard thing at that particular developmental stage of everything's happening online. Just the ability yeah. to sit down and have a face-to-face conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And the way the things we say, especially if we even remove the video and just end up with text, the things we say and the way we interact is different to how we would interact um, face to face. Right. It's hard to interpret some things over text, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Our minds just go crazy with the way that you can interpret things. Yeah. (laughs) It's hard enough to interpret what someone says face to face but at least you have their facial expression and all their non-verbals that can kind of say, oh, they're joking or they're, they're still friendly. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's very tricky. What are your thoughts about within a family as the pandemic continues about when parents and adolescents aren't on the same page about taking risks? Like, for instance, when things open up and, you know, the teenager wants to go out to a big gathering of friends and the parent is saying, no, thanks. We're, you know, we're staying on the safer side here. How do, do you have any words of wisdom about how to navigate those kinds of differences? Oh, that's a hard one, Debbie. It's, it's really a perennial problem that happens with adolescents and their parents is the adolescents, they're developmentally ready to push the boundaries and to do those things that parents will see is more risky. Um, and it has to be a collaborative decision. It, ha- it depends on the age. If you're talking about a 12-year-old, well, parents have a lot more say than a 17-year-old, for example. Um, but I think uh, it's a balance and trying hard to listen to each other and come up with something that's kind of both parties are, maybe it's not their first choice, but they're reasonably happy with is the only way that you can solve this problem. And I think the other thing that sometimes is hard for parents and teenagers is that the difference in autonomy between a 12-year-old and a 16-year-old is dramatic. And so there's this kind of balance along that journey where adolescents keep, of need, keep pushing to let me do a little bit more, let me do a little bit more, let me do a little bit more. Um, and parents um, say, no, 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 not that yet. And those, things, those two things are essential. You can't have one without the other. They go together. The parents provide their safety and the boundaries to stop teenagers from going to a rave party in the middle of a pandemic. <clears throat> and the um, teenagers try to push it so that they can get their independence. Those two things are needed. So I think it only comes down to being able to listen to each other and um, recognise that as a parent, it's okay to be a parent. You know, it's okay to have boundaries and to decide what's okay and what's not okay. But also your teenager needs some autonomy 
an agency and they need to make some decisions as well. Uh, there's no one who can say what's right or wrong for a particular family in this context. Yeah. Well, you don't have an answer to what exa- how exactly people should navigate that, but I think reflecting on that tension and how that, that tension in and of itself is just part of that relationship and it's necessary. Yeah, it's, it's part of the deal. It's part of the deal. And when I work with uh, young people and um, families, I often say the first thing we need to do is just listen to what the feeling is about and, and listen to what they're trying to say. <clears throat> and then from there, sometimes try to work out how to come up with a shared thing. This is an interesting um, exercise in whether I'm allowed to go out and be exposed to coronavirus or whether I have to stay home. It's tricky. It's tricky. It's tricky for all of us. In your previous episode with us, you talked about how evolutionarily teenagers are meant to be leaving the nest and setting up their own lives and that everyone's back in the nest 24-7 and it's, it's just not how it's meant to be. It's a hard thing about this. Yeah, that is a hard thing about this and that social aspect means that the people that you're seeing face-to-face is just your family and that can get, it can be great for some families but not for others. Yeah. For some, it's just too much. Well, and we have also cancellations, I think, of big ceremonies that really mark important transitions in adolescence. And I, I feel loss around some of the things that happen in my life, but they're pretty minor compared to something like a high school graduation or a prom party, something like that. Um, Sad. Yeah, and they are they are real things to be sad about. They're real the real losses of um, this experience. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> kids starting high school for the first time and um, have not at being at high school. All of those things. Um, and I think we need to recognise and acknowledge that as an adult, sometimes it can be easy to dismiss it as not important. You know, oh, people are dying. Why are you worried about your graduation for example but they are real losses they are um um, getting your driver's license and not being able to go for your driver's license because you can't get tested those things are are real issues to worry about yeah i think um for, for a young person if you're worried about those things it's real and you're not being silly or making big things out of little things it's real and it's okay to feel sad about those things Right, your feelings um, are valid. Talk to someone and acknowledge it and find a way to um, ground yourself if your feelings are overwhelming you um, and sharing that is usually the best thing. Yeah, yeah. One last question related to the pandemic. Um, We're not sure when this episode comes out, it will be the start of a new school year here in the United States. I don't know, your schedule is probably different there in Australia, but I don't know what the year ahead is going to look like. Some mix of online and in-person, it might shut down again. Who knows? I wonder about this online school thing. I think some, some young people are just fine with it. In fact, some maybe prefer it in a way, not having to go to high school and they like that setting. But I know that some people are struggling with this, trying to learn online and do school in that format. Do you have any thoughts for parents or adolescents who are just finding that to be a really hard way to learn and really missing the school setting? Yeah, Um, I'm seeing all of those things in the, so I've been working with clients on telehealth online and also doing some work in schools and I um, am seeing all of those things. Uh, young people who um, actually quite like it, the study at home and find for the first time some people saying, I can concentrate, I can get my schoolwork done and I can get it done in three hours and then I've got a couple of hours to go on to whatever else I need to do, gaming or something. Um, and other people failing, failing their school year because they can't concentrate. Um, and they can't get the work done by themselves. Um, and so um, I think there we have a really important role for teachers and families here to help a young person know that all of those kind of levels are pretty much what we're going to see. Some people will be failing school and some people will be loving it and never wanting to go back to um, 
classrooms. Um, so I think there's a role for helping a young person know that wherever you are on that continuum, it's not your fault. Um, and you didn't make this happen. And it's the, the, it's the job of the people around you to help you get to where you need to be. It's not all up to you. You don't have to take it on board as um, a fault in you. This is a weird system that we're in and a weird experience that we have. Um, and uh, re reaching out to parents and teachers and trying to get some help and um, finding a way to um, get teachers to help you get back to where you are. I spoke to a teacher recently who um, was talking about this and she said, you know, our job is to help kids get back to where they need to be. And so if they're struggling, we really want them to connect with us so they can, so we can help them get back to where they need to be. That's our job as teachers. And of course, yeah. not everyone's going to have teachers that will do that. But um, I think that's the important thing is not to take it all on board. It's not all you. Yeah, I mean, I, I keep saying the same thing to the adults I work with. Go easy on yourself. So much of this isn't your fault. Just do the best you can. Hang in there. This is going to change over time. Um, but this this is a weird thing that's going yeah. on. Yeah, and when it comes to um, what our minds do, we talk about the way we use um, our ability to tell ourselves what to do as, call it, as your advisor, you know that. Um, and in our new book, we, we made the advisor this guy, this young man in a suit. So he, so he knows everything, you know, this picture of this young man in a suit. And so that's the part of us that tells us what to do. You need to do this and you need to do this. And that is our, our, our internal dialogue telling us, how do I fix this problem? How do I solve it? That's being ruled by the, the dialogue in our head, by our ability to tell ourselves, how do I fix a problem? We call that giving yourself advice, right? How do I fix a problem, right? It makes you feel like you've got something useful to do, right? And so there's, that's, that's being ruled by the voice in your head that says, find a solution, find a solution, find a solution, right? And sometimes that's not what we want to do. And so there will be people who are failing school or finding school difficult or don't want to go back to school who will be saying the same thing, find a solution, right? And their minds will come up with a solution. Now, if you flip it over, there's another part of our model that we call being, being able to discover and finding ways to try new things you've never tried before. So if you imagine one group of people being ruled by their advisor and then there's another group of people who found different ways to do things, right? And that is what we call um, being a discoverer or finding a way to do something that allows you to get through the situation in a way that is connected to what you care about. And so just trying something you've never tried before and doing something different that is meaningful to you. And young people have found all sorts of different solutions and ways to cope with this. And I think there's, there's something really important about knowing that we can do that, just knowing that we can do that. We'll always find a way to get used to it. But your advisor is not going to tell you that. Your advisor is going to say, find a solution, quickly fix the pandemic, make it go away. Yeah, your advisor's trying to keep you safe and protect you, but it's not always doing it in a way that is actually helpful or actually in line with those bigger pro-social values. Yeah. Like so coming together, helping one another. Yeah. So stepping out, finding something to do, finding something that you haven't tried before, seeing what happens is a really good way to manage this. And we can add a new advisor rule that we do all the time. So we have our own rules that we tell ourselves. And so a new advisor rule is this will end. This will end. And so that's something that I have to remind myself of often. And I think finding a way to remind ourselves that it is, it will be over and we will get past it. This too shall pass. That's hard to remember. Sometimes when you're in the middle of something hard, it doesn't feel like it. Yeah. But exactly. having that, that bigger perspective is really important. Yeah. And to remember, we are, we are set up to manage change. We are good at it. We don't feel like we're good at it in the middle of it. But think about all the ways in which uh, we've, we've adapted and fit and, you know, like two, um, three months ago I was locking down and now it's opening up or, you know, whatever it is, we'll cope. We will cope. And what we want to do, and this is the important piece in that discoverer, is we want to cope in a way that makes our world better. Yes. Yeah. 
It's Patricia Karpis, host of Untangle, the award-winning podcast that covers topics like optimizing brain health, finding your purpose, how to sleep better, harnessing the power of anxiety, successfully changing habits, finding more happiness and joy, and overall, all the many ways to live your best life. If you enjoy hearing from thought leaders, neuroscientists, psychologists, nutritionists, business leaders, and more, join us wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, speaking of, we we mentioned earlier that we originally were talking about doing this conversation focused on helping adolescents with their fears around climate change. You know, mm-hmm. you've had these big fires in Australia, so many concerning alarms about what's happening to the the environment in the on the earth. How can we translate into that this idea into that problem? Yeah. How would you help adolescents worry about their fears related to that. Yeah, that's a really good example to talk about. And now you have fires in the north. You have right. fires in, at home where you are in the US and as your summer comes in. Um, uh, there is a place for inside this, this behaviour that we call the discoverer is trying things you haven't tried before to see what happens. And there are a lot of ways to think about active hope. Um, so doing, taking some action that builds hope. Um, there are ways that you can do that in the house, but outside of the home, there are some pretty incredible organisations that are giving young people ideas of how to have active, active hope. Um, and so I don't want to talk, just talk about it as a concept. I want to talk about it as a thing that, you, that people can do. But active hope is um, not living in your comfort zone all of the time and trying new things, interacting with others and paying attention to what happens. So what we want to do is discover your power to act, okay? Um, and... For example, the school strikes for climate were a really powerful way that students were able to take action and show the world that they cared about something. Um, And right now, with uh, the shutdown, there are actually school strikes for climate happening online. And I know that the climate is kind of pushed to the side while we manage the the, um, um, pandemic. But if you think about the small steps you can take, you can take action in your family, by helping your family see that this is important to you and changing the way your family might do some things. Maybe planting vegetables is a good thing to do in the middle of coronavirus or taking action on how your family does things at home. And it's not just about a family changing how they use their rubbish, for example. It's educating people and sharing the knowledge and ideas you have with people. Um, One good example that I want to share is that I need to mention this organisation because they've done it so well, and that's Extinction Rebellion. And I'm not advocating that people join that organisation. But if if you go online and look at the way they have organised their social group, it's all about how do we connect in a way that makes this fun and helps us get our message across. And that's the two things that you kind of want to think about is how do I find a way to find my people and have fun? So whether it's craft or cooking or singing or dancing, which, by the way, is what this organisation does. Um, It's getting with the people that are your people who care about the issue you care about and finding things to do. And when you're together, you can then build on to the next um, action that you want to take. So I think it's together and it can be very small actions um, and then uh, finding a group, we find a way to make it bigger and to get our message across. And we're doing it. We're doing it. We are doing it. It's not quick. And we've got to, you know, push down the old ideas, but we're getting there. Yeah, I think that's something that I love about adolescents is seeing them take action in this way. And I know it's not everybody's thing. Like you said, you have to find your people. You have to find your your thing. And for some adolescents, this may not be it. Activism is not their thing. That's okay. Um, but I think that for those that are, it's exciting to see some of the things that young people are doing in the world. It's very inspiring. Yeah, it's very, it is very inspiring. And the reason I talked about that organisation, Extinction Rebellion, is because it's actually a nice model of, of, it's a nice psychological model. So, for example, one of the things they do is they make sure they cook together. So if you're in your local group, you'll go along and they'll have a cooking day where they'll cook together so that when they go and do a protest, for example, that can feed the protesters. Um, 
And it's the action of being involved and cooking together that's really important. And that might not feel like it's going to change the planet, but it's those small things that are really important. So I think if you're a young person, it's finding the things that you care about. You know, it could be just building a social group in your community, and I don't mean just. It could be building a social group in your community that you care about. It doesn't have to be about any activism. Finding a way to bring people together no matter what that is, um, and then uh, doing it in small ways. I know that during the, this time there have been so many wonderful examples of people putting notes in neighbours' letterboxes and, you know, people offering to, to get together and do things to help each other and to be together, you know, singing and singing online and doing all of the things that we've worked out how to do. That's the real hope is finding a way to do that. I work mostly with adults in my clinical practice. I really don't work with adolescents as a therapist. It's not my area. Some adults that I work with occasionally, when it comes to these things, I think they lose hope almost, or they get a little bit of an existential crisis around it. Like, what's the point? Why bother kind of thing? Do you ever see that with adolescents? And if so, what do you, what do you say to someone who's in that place? If, they're, if this is just feeling like a lot? them Mm. Um, well yes of course young people and adults are all the same that we often lose hope and feel like there is no hope Um, so what I say to them is probably not much different Debbie to what you do with adults is the first we validate that it's okay to feel like that that that's a normal human experience to feel that there is no hope and then we step into looking at ways in which people have actually taken action and hope yeah. So hope is not hope is not a wish. Hope is doing something. And, you know, the most important thing is the thing that you do, your mind will probably tell you it's insignificant, right? So let's say you um, send a text message to all of your friends every Monday morning saying, hi, guys, welcome to the week, right? Um, and you feel like that's really just a very t- tiny thing. But those tiny things are that keys for change and the keys for hope and so no matter where you are it's about thinking about something that you can do and putting aside your mind that tells you this is not important enough yeah taking action even if that pops to mind you got to keep going and it's usually the smallest of steps that actually are the most helpful it's it's often not the big big thing and we feel like, oh, I've got to be, you know, Greta Thunberg, for example. But it's it's actually the smallest things that change. The yeah. Smallest. There was a chapter about transforming your viewpoint, transforming your world, and you talk about moving from a self-view to a social view. Can you talk a little bit about what, what you mean by that? Yeah. Um, if you think we have two ways in which we can look at the world, we can look at the world from a self-perspective, a self-referential perspective, like it's all about me, what I see, what I think, what I want, what's happening to me right now, why is this happening to me? That's one way of looking at the world. And then the other way of looking at the world is our social way of looking at the world. And social view, we call it, <clears throat> which is just a way of describing other people. So we can also look at the world as um, what my family uh, care about or what my friends care about or what my school cares about, and then we get bigger and bigger and bigger. And so this idea is built on some evolutionary science that suggests and shows we are a group species. Um, And when we start to look at the group level, that's the area that can be really powerful in, in terms of our well-being and helping us change and um, helping us manage and cope and feel like life is worth living. And so one thing that we want to be able to think about when we work together is that it can be easy to think about just yourself. You know, some neuroscientists will talk about this as the default mode network of just thinking about yourself over like self-referential thinking. And when you take that self-referential thinking and turn it into thinking about other people, and connecting with other people and doing things like you and me talking together. It's suddenly not about just what's going on in my head, but it's about you and me, and that opens up enormous possibilities. The other part of that is we are a group species. We need other people, and together we do much better than what we ever do alone. 
So we try to build in that social view um, in that way. And it can also come down to really simple things like knowing that while we sit here, you have an advisor telling you what to do, that voice in your head, and you notice feelings inside your body and they're different to mine. Being able to do those simple things and check it out. I mean, I think it's not, it doesn't just have a group advantage too. I think that the more we do that perspective shift, it's more fulfilling somehow to get out of our own problems and connect with others and look at this from this other perspective. And I think it's, sometimes it's hard to do that when, because there's always a problem right in front of us that's happening in our own life. Yeah. Yeah. And we always feel like we, uh, can mind read and interpret the situation well we don't always but we often feel like we can mind read and interpret the situation well you know the example that I think of is that you know there was often a there's a social um, construct around called you know the resting angry face I'm going to call it that the resting angry face Um, um, which you know when someone has a particular facial expression and you're watching them in a classroom and you think oh they're not liking this and they look like they're grumpy. But if you go and check out what's going on for them, sometimes they're just listening and that's their listening face. And I think that's how you transform your world is understanding that what you see, you're, you will be set up to interpret your way and that's not always the only way. You need to check it out. Right? You need to check it out. I wish I could remember what age I was because I remember having this aha moment I used to go into groups when I was young and just think that, oh, everybody's looking at me and they're really focused on what I'm doing and I better not mess up. And they all probably think I'm, you know, I just had this constant self-doubt going through my head and around groups of people. And then one day I just had this aha moment that, oh, they're probably also all thinking the same thing about themselves. And it really transformed something for me. And I was, I was definitely a teenager when I had this realization because wait, they're so caught up in their own stuff. They're not actually paying as much attention to me as I think they are. Yeah, that's a really powerful realisation. I'm so glad you had that. And in fact, when I, so I've used the book Your Life, Your Way a lot with teenagers, even though it's just coming out. I've been, we've been trying it in the clinic for, as we wrote it, we were trying it in schools and in the clinic. And there's a chapter in there um, on uh building friendships and there's an image in there that that's called inside outside view and what you see is a is a guy who looks all cool on the outside and he's got a trench coat on he's got dreadlocks he looks really cool um and then there's a shadow image of what he looks like on the inside and it's a person hunched down in a little ball um and this is what we call it's an it's an image that describes what we call inside outside view And so what we try to do with young people is help them um, know that how you look on the outside and how you are on the inside is not necessarily the same. And most of us are going around thinking, do I look okay in in this? Am I okay? Are people looking at me? Do I smile okay? Is my breathing okay? Um, And we're all doing the same thing on the inside, but on the outside, most of us kind of look okay. Mm-hmm. So you can't you can't tell. So there's a normalising process that quite a lot of us are thinking about ourselves a lot of the time, and worried about whether we're okay. And in adolescence, that is ramped up. That is such a powerful thing in the teenage years. And in fact, it starts to come on board about late. Well, in Australia, it's late primary school, it's late elementary school. I guess eight years old, nine years old is about mm-hmm. when you start to see yourself in the context of other people and start thinking about whether you're a popular person or a uh, not popular person, those things. Yeah. Yeah, I can see once it. You know, once you know that, it changes it. Sometimes I say to young people, just imagine that you go into class and everybody has a you know, thought bubble on their head and you can actually see what's going on. Yeah. Even if you and I did that right now, Debbie, like I know, I would be having a thought bubble on my head right now that says, is this interview okay? Am I rambling too much? And you probably have something similar. Yeah. Oh, I'm botching this. I'm doing a terrible job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. So it'd be, it'd be nice if we could just imagine that um, as we walk around. <laughs> yeah. Actually, if we could see other people's, we might feel a little better because we'd realize we're not alone, right, in our 
those kinds of yeah. thoughts. Yeah. yeah. And actually, it's really helpful. If once you know it, it becomes helpful because you realize the purpose of that is to help you do a good job at life. Yeah. It's to help you do a good job at life. If you were able to get rid of that altogether, so you didn't actually care what people thought and you didn't care what people think, like I'd turn up to school in my sweatpants and they'll probably wear the same sweatpants for days and days on end because I wouldn't really care what people think. Um, and so there's a there's a use there in having um, a sense of what other people think. And as long as we can um, soften around that and not make it a rigid rule that we have to always be doing what other people think or worrying about what other people think, then we can get free of it like you did. Yeah, that's such a good point that there really is an important function of that socially, that it helps us be part of the group. It's As mm. long as we don't buy into it too much where it gets to be... Yeah, a big problem in its own right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we internalize that over time. So you can even live by yourself and um, um, have a social view inside your head, for example, where you think, well, I better not stay around in my sweatpants. I, I better get dressed and I better do the dishes. And there is no one to see that you've done that except you. But that self reference, that ability to think about what other people think becomes part of us. Yeah. And that's a that's an okay thing. We actually need it. Probably doesn't hurt us to change our pants once in a while, even if no one knows about it. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> that's exactly right. Oh, that's a good pandemic question, isn't it? Where we all get out of our sweatpants. Um, we we need, we need that. I know I'm not a good person if I just let myself do whatever I want. Um I need to know that someone around me is gonna say, Hey, you know. And even if they're not going to say, hey, inside my head, I think they are. Yeah. As long as I don't get caught up and lose my life to worrying about pleasing other people. So there's always that kind of balance. And if you make self and social in balance, like self is what I think about me inside my head, who I am, whether I'm what I want, and social is what other people are doing and what other people think and do I get along with other people. And I think if you keep those two in balance, you're probably going to be pretty much doing okay. Yeah, then maybe that's the the balance to aim for. You know, in your book, you have that section on relationships and friends. You also have a great section on bullying and how to handle if there is, if you are feeling bullied, um, other things like anxiety, managing life online. And that's huge right now. Just finding that, that sweet spot with social media and video games and with the pandemic. I mean, I think that's a sometimes even harder to manage. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm going to give a plug for our book because I, and when I say our, this is mine and Joseph Chiroki. Joe is the first author on this. Um, but Joe and I spent two years on this book and I think it's the best book we've written. Um, and what we wanted was um, something that was real and usable. So we know that most uh, most people don't want to pick up a self-help book and read it. Like, it doesn't matter whether you're an adult or a teenager. Most people don't go, oh, I'd really like to read a self-help book today. Um, and so there's that. And then the other part of it is that we also know that most of us are pretty time poor and uh, we just want to get the information that we need when we need it. And you don't want to read 300 pages to do that. So we wrote this book with each chapter being a specific problem. So if you are a young person or you work with young people and let's say they're getting bullied, you can just go to the bully chapter and you can read that independently of anything else. You don't need to read the whole book. So we wrote it like that because we wanted um, people who help young people, the professionals, to find something useful and we also wanted something that was useful for young people. Um, so that's a really important part of thinking about what this is actually about, how to make small messages that are useful. And so chapters like bullying, uh, I use those chapters all the time actually with the young people that I work with because it's got some great strategies inside there for what to do when you're being bullied or how to make friends and how to build friendships. I mean, it's very well done because it's very readable, compelling, practical fun to read. And there are such helpful tips in there. I mentioned earlier, I'm going to buy it for my niece and nephew. I think I'm going to buy it for myself too, because I think I'm no teenager anymore. I'm that, uh, you know, I'm in solidly in middle age now. And I still think that there's something to get out of that. And I just wish 
I would have had this book when I was an adolescent. It would have saved me a lot of grief. You did an excellent job with it. Thank you. There's a chapter. So in the bullying chapter, for example, Joseph came up with this great idea that we call the two by two power up, um, which is kind of a bit hard to explain on the on a podcast. But it, it's a way of looking at what the bullying that is happening to you is and then gives you four ways to respond to it um, and looks at those ways in, in terms of whether it increases your self power or whether it increases your social power. So, um, and different ways you respond can do that. For example, if you often, you know, when you're getting bullied, an adult will tell you just to ignore it. That's often the stock stand. Oh, just ignore it is what an adult will say. But if you do that, you decrease your self-power. You decrease your ability to feel like you can cope with the world and you increase the bully's social power. Um, And so, but another example is if you are assertive, but still nice when someone bullies you, if you say, you know, that's not a great way to talk to me, you increase your self-power and you increase your social power as well. Um, and so we look at these different ways and say what you want, what we want is to find a solution that increases your a bit, how you feel about yourself and also increases or at least maintains how you look socially and how you appear socially so that that's the best option. And we look at the different options that sometimes adults suggest and um, try different ways. It's all about trying it. And the, the really important thing about bullying is sometimes one way will work in one situation and another way will work in another situation. So you, you have to try different things and not think that one solution, one problem is always going to be the answer. Right. I love that, that you try different things, but you have some actual helpful strategies for what to actually do. It's not just about how to manage your own feelings about it. That's in there too, but it's also like, what do you actually say in those kind of situations? Yeah, That's really absolutely. helpful. Yeah, and we need to know it. And let's face it, bullying is not just with teenagers. Like adults get bullied too. Lots yeah. of adults get bullied at work. Um, and we need to work out how to how to deal with that. Oh, I work with my adult clients all the time on assertive communication. It's a hard skill. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. you also have some other things like, for instance, um, just things like procrastination and stress and pressure and all these things that that people are grappling with. In adolescence and beyond, so it's a wonderful, wonderful contribution. Yeah, well, um, procrastination is a really interesting one and we often, um, I'll often talk to professionals who say, how do I help a teenager to get motivated? And so we do look at procrastination and that um, is a place for uh, lots of work with young people and helping them to change. We give some really clear, concrete strategies um, how, how procrastination happens and how those barriers get in the way. And I think there's four barriers that we that we talk about in terms of procrastination. And we help young people look at the barriers. Like my advisor tells me it's too hard is one barrier. Another barrier is I'm trying to remember, but it's something like I, I um, it, it, it's too big. So we look at each of those barriers and help them break it down so that you can actually say, okay, let's try this one. Really concrete stuff. Not although I'm making it sound vague, but concrete stuff. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And this is what I'm telling you. We can all benefit from this because who doesn't procrastinate <laughs> in different stages of life from time to time? Yeah. You know, I mean, I know there are some people out there who don't much, but I myself often do. So, yeah. me yeah. too. Me too. Me too. It was, a, it was a profound realization in my life when I realized that my to do list was always going to have a lot of things on it. And it was okay to procrastinate over it some. And that was an okay thing. I didn't have to like power through and always tick it off. Yeah, yeah. And not get too too far down that hole of procrastination where you're not getting those important things done. Yeah, it's a balance. It's a balance. You can't drive yourself all the time. It just makes you tired. Yeah. But you also can't not do anything either because that that takes your life away too. Yeah. You offer some steps for increasing well-being right off the bat in the beginning of your book. Just some simple, practical strategies. Given that we're in this really stressful time in the world and that people are doing all these really important things in their lives and doing their best to manage their lives, what are a few tips that you would offer just to help adolescents take care of themselves right now? 
Yeah, that's a great thing to ask, Debbie. So we um, begin with um, talking about values and um, uh, we divide uh, what you care about into six ways of well-being. Um, and uh, what we know is that if people do some of these things, then they are, they are likely to feel that life is better. And so some of the six ways of well-being include things like giving to others, connecting with others, um, self-care, being active, uh, challenging yourself, and being able to be here in the moment. So let's talk about two things. Self-care is a really important thing. And sometimes that's neglected, is we don't realise that looking after myself is, a, is an okay thing. I was talking with a young person yesterday about self-care and the week before we talked about some self-care things and yesterday she was online with me and she said, I had a bath and I went shopping and I bought a new ring and I said no to some things and she was dramatically different for those small self-care things. So that's really important that we can all do. There's no boundaries in that. The one I tend to like the most is um, giving as a way of improving well-being and I, I come back to this social thing so often I can hear it but the research shows that if you give to other people it it improves your well-being it's like depression for example if you're depressed and you give to other people that helps your um, depression um, but the important thing is we're not talking about giving money or or gifts um, we can give other people a smile or we can give them a text message or we can give them a hug or if we're allowed to do that um, and those small things actually make us feel better and so we frame it in um, there's a really I, I really like this metaphor we talk about two ways of living um, living in zombie land or living in vitality land and we know that vitality land is kind of a lame phrase like we get that but um, we also know that lots of people spend their time in with a place that we call zombie land, which is just doing the thing that you have to do next and just going through life one thing after another, just doing what you have to do. It's boring and it's dull and it's all black and shaded grey. Um, and then this place that we laughingly called vitality land is where you get to when you just find ways to do small things that improve your well-being, like giving a smile to someone, saying hello, I'm working with a really socially anxious person at the moment and they're improving their ways of well-being by saying hello to people as they walk their dog, right? That's all. And it's dramatic how those things can actually change. And can I give an example? It, can I interrupt for yeah. a quick example of yeah, that? Of so I was walking my dog just yesterday and this, I came kind of into the street where someone couldn't quite see me. And so we just had this funny moment where we both kind of stopped and this car um, didn't really almost hit me. But anyway, we just had this kind of joke between us because we both laughed and we just had this connection, this person just driving their car by. And I felt a little surge of, it was just so nice to have a little exchange like that. And it was just a funny, one of those funny little awkward moments. And then we laughed and have a good night. And it just felt, I felt some of that. In that yeah, tiny little, little moment. surge of well-being. That's really yeah, interesting. I did it. Like it, I could feel it in my heart a little bit, just that feeling of like, oh, it was kind of just a nice little interaction. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. nice enough for you to remember a day or two later and yeah. think, oh, that was nice. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah, it's that stuff. It's that stuff. Absolutely that stuff, which changes your life from being like a zombie to um, feeling more vitality. Yeah, people have to see the picture if they get the book of the zombie land versus the vitality land. There's an illustration of that and it's just very fitting. You can relate to it. Like there are days that it feels like zombie land and days that feel just this enthusiasm and engagement. Yeah. Yeah. Because sometimes as a young person, you can look at adults and think they're all in zombie land. I definitely don't want my life to be like that. And you know what? It doesn't have to be like that. But that's right. Small, but you have to make steps. it not be like that. Yeah, that's right. It helps if you bring it into your awareness and take those small steps, like smiling at the person that you that you passed with the dog. Yeah. Those things. Um, and the other part about the, the six ways to well-being is things like separating it out for one is challenging yourself. You know, if you're a 
um, a person who loves gaming, for example, um, you're really challenging yourself all the time by your online gaming and learning and you know expanding your world through that. It's a great thing to do. But that alone is not going to be enough to make a life vital and engaging, right? It's one really important part, but you need some of those other parts, like self-care, for example. Or you need to get out and get some sunlight, those things. Yeah. So balancing it. Yeah, those that sunlight, getting some rest, moving, socializing. These are great strategies, I think, really practical and important things that people can be doing that are just going to help everyone take care of themselves in the midst of all this. I'm so appreciative, Louise. Thank you for coming on and talking to me today and, and for writing this terrific book. I hope people will check it out. It's really a great one. And, and we'll take some of your words of wisdom beyond the interview. Um, thank you for inviting me, and it's always a pleasure to talk to you and I love your podcast Psychologists of the Clock it's it's one of my favorites and I really mean that I listen to it all the time because you seem to go in so many different places it's good fun well thank you Louise that means a lot to me I appreciate it thank you for listening to Psychologists off the clock if you enjoy our podcast you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon you can find us wherever you get your podcasts and you can connect with us on Facebook Twitter and Instagram We'd like to thank our interns, Dr. Catherine Foley-Saldania and Dr. Katie Lear. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com.